Glory to Jesus Christ, Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their history, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is the story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianmedia.com, who are also producers of EWTN's Living Right with Dr. Ray Garendi. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host, and this is a packed weekend, a packed day liturgically because we're kind of at a meeting point, a kind of a juncture, a confluence of the end of what was the incarnational period of the liturgical calendar, meaning that's what started with Christmas, or technically was would have started with the Annunciation, which is March 25th, but more so for our purposes, Christmas. Christmas all the way through to this past weekend this year, which we celebrate at this time the entrance of of Jesus Christ into the temple as a 40-day-old child. It's also called the presentation. Now, it's interesting that this feast day is called the entrance or the presentation of Christ in the temple in the Eastern churches. In the Western church, it is called the purification of the Mother of God. Now, there was more of a Marian feast day. In the East, it's more of a Christological feast day. Interesting, another interesting example how the church in its complementarity, East and West, arrives at the same point but comes at it in different complementary ways. And there was a matter of emphasis is usually what the differences are. As I mentioned, it's a confluence because only are we concluding now the incarnational season That's right. It goes all the way till February 2nd, actually February 3rd this year, but it butts up then against almost the beginning of the Lenten season, the season of the great fast, of the bright sadness, as we often call it in Eastern churches, because today, Sunday, is actually Meat Fair Sunday in the Byzantine liturgical calendar. Those, of course, are on the Gregorian calendar. Some Eastern churches are on the Julian calendar, sometimes called the Old Calendar, and so they wouldn't be starting their Lent yet. But for us, on the Gregorian calendar, those Eastern churches which are on the Gregorian calendar, today is the Meat Fair Sunday. In other words, it's our Mardi Gras. There is a buildup to Lent, to the rigors, the ascetical rigors of fasting and penance and prayer, there's a buildup in the Eastern churches, which is very, very helpful, very sensible. We sort of do this in stages, especially if we're going to give up, as the fasting tradition says, meat and dairy products. In other words, the fattiness of the land, the fattiness of foods, because those foods are usually used in terms of celebration. So we sort of back off from the fatty, rich, succulent things, and we're going to go into an ascetical time. So we kind of do that in stages. 
Today, we eat meat for the last time. That's why it's called meat fair, or that's really what Mardi Gras means, like Fat Tuesday. In other words, even the Western tradition, Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday, men, is the last time you would eat the fattiness of meat. Now, in the Eastern churches, it's the same thing, only it's this Sunday before Lent is the meat fair Sunday. So we eat meat for the last time. We're going to give that up. But there's one more week to go, and next Sunday then will be cheese fair. And others will give up dairy products, and that will bring us then right into Lent on Sunday evening with the forgiveness vespers. So we do this in stages because it's generally more sensible, easier on the body and the soul to move into something rather than to kind of go cold turkey or just kind of jump into it. Because whenever we do that, first of all, it goes against a certain basic human rhythm. Our bodies need and our minds need a kind of a easy buildup, a kind of a process, and we need to then get into the actual moment or event or purpose, and then we need to sort of gradually come out of it. Think of it as a bell curve. It's a very, very basic curve of life and very basic to the human person. We need that kind of movement, and oftentimes we don't get that in our culture. Our culture tends to rush into things and then all of a sudden go cold turkey or suddenly drop them or suddenly it ends. Then they rush into something else and then it ends. And that actually makes for a certain unhealthiness, a certain kind of disharmony or imbalance. But in the liturgical tradition, which with all of its genius, it understands our humanness and understands even the life, the cycle of Christ. And that's why there's always a kind of a cycle, a kind of a rhythm of building up climactic moments and kind of a falling action and resolution, only to be repeated again. So we're moving gradually into the rigors of the ascetical disciplines of Lent, of abstaining from meat and dairy products. Today, it'll be meat for the last time, and then next Sunday, it'll be dairy products for the last time. And then we begin our Lent. Now, the reason to abstain from meat and dairy products is not because there's something bad about it. We should feel guilty because we enjoyed something kind of fatty. I know sometimes we feel guilty for trying to diet or lose weight, but that's not the point here. In the liturgical tradition, in the sacramental view that the church takes on things, and this becomes very highlighted as we go into Lent, we abstain from something precisely because it's good Not because it's bad or we're guilty. We shouldn't have that. That's too good for us. It's too good. It's got to be sinful. It's not that. It's because it is good. It is holy. It is a gift from God. And we step back from it so as to appreciate it that much more, to appreciate the value of it, and then to return to that thing in a more balanced way, a more judicious way, a way in which we're not addicted to it. A lot of times we we fall into addictions in our lives. We say, oh, I just have to have this. Well, we should never really say that, I just have to have this. Addiction is not a sign or a part of healthy living, spiritually, physically, psychologically, emotionally, intellectually. We don't do things out of addiction. Other, we don't go overboard. We don't obsess or possess things. Rather, we move into them or engage them in a very balanced way. And what that means is I can approach this particular thing, whatever it is, in our case, it's food, but I do it in a way where I can approach it or I can choose not to. I can have some of it, enjoy it for what it is, but not be excessive or obsessive with it. That's what we call harmony or balance. And that's our goal when it comes to, especially things of the flesh, things that can feed into our passions. And our passions are things that can very easily go into addiction or be out of control because of original sin. Our passions are good. Food is good. The things of the earth that taste good are good. God made everything good. We're supposed to enjoy them. It's okay. But we have to do it in a 
harmonious way, a balanced way, a way that is not consuming or possessive or lustful. So you can lust after a lot of things. Lust means a kind of inordinate desire for something. It's just very inward, self-directed. And it kind of sees that thing simply in terms or strictly in terms of how we can enjoy it, how we can use or possess it just for satisfaction. It doesn't see those things in terms of their own integrity. You know, like, for instance, you take a piece of food. A piece of food has its own integrity. A human person, human body has its own integrity. Everything has its own integrity in life. And if that is true, we approach it then with a spirituality of integrity, of balance and harmony, of kind of like a, a respect for that thing, even if it's a piece of food. And in doing so, we respect God's creation, we respect God's order of, of things, and we can enjoy that thing even more. It doesn't possess us as we obsess over it. So there's no obsession and no possession. There's only a kind of a free, balanced way to experience and enjoy something, as God designed us to do. And that's part of the genius of the Lenten period and the rigors of fasting. So the important thing is to remember, because sometimes this is, this is oftentimes a mistake on people's parts, we don't abstain from things that we like, like chocolate or desserts. A lot of people do that because they're sinfully good and we really shouldn't have them. We abstain from them because they are good, and we want to have a good approach to them, to preserve their goodness, their integrity in the way that we approach them or the way that we choose to abstain from them. So the fasting rigors of Lent are very, very valuable to us, not only for our spiritual life, but for our whole life altogether, our whole human personhood, our emotions, our mind, our heart, our bodies. This is a central rhythm of life that God has built into creation. And Lent, and the way we go into Lent, especially in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, is a great way to be ushered into this beautiful, balanced rhythm. It's a great harmony. And then when we return to those things, we return to them with a certain balance and harmony and joy, a freedom. This is all about freeing us from what we call, as we say in the Eastern churches, the tyranny of the passions. Now, during Meat Fair, we also focus on our sinfulness, because we observe and we read about the last judgment and how we'll be judged based on our actions of charity. And did we love, basically? Did we love? And did we care for people? Did we visit the sick? Were we compassionate? Did we give drink to those who are thirsty? As always, some of the prayers during this time are, are so enlightening and so engaging. I'm just going to go over some of the liturgical texts for this Meat Fair Sunday. This is from Vespers. When you shall come to render just judgment, O righteous judge, you shall sit upon your throne of glory. A river of fire shall flow before your judgment seat. The powers of heaven will be there with you, filled with fear. All humanity will be judged according to their deeds. At this hour, O Christ, spare us. And because of your great love, grant that the faithful who pray to you may be given a place with your chosen ones. I weep and lament when I think of the outer darkness and eternal fire. Together with Hades, the worm that consumes and the gnashing of teeth, the unceasing grief that falls upon those who have sinned without measure and who have provoked you to anger, O God most good. Alas, among these sinners I am the first, but in your great mercy, O judge, save me. Okay, I have read these verses, but of course they are chanted during our liturgical services. And we're going to talk more about this confluence of the end of the incarnational season and the beginning of the ascetical season of Lent when we return. I'm Father Thomas Leah on Light of the East.
Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support in order to keep Light of the East on the air. You can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. People often ask me, what is the difference between an Eastern Catholic and a Latin Rite Catholic? Hello, I'm Father Thomas J. Loya with an Eastern Christian Moment. The difference between Eastern Catholicism and Roman or Western Catholicism is not a difference in belief, nor is it just a matter of different customs and traditions. Rather, it is a difference of theological emphasis, of seeing the same thing but from different vantage points, according to the respective genius of both lungs of the Church. For instance, in Western spirituality, there is an emphasis of man striving towards God and how the accomplishments of man point to the greatness of God. This emphasis became expressed in the tall verticality of Gothic church architecture and in works of famous artists and composers. In the East, the starting point is God's transcendence, which becomes imminent and incarnate. This emphasis became expressed in the domes, arches, and iconography of the Eastern churches. East and West may differ in emphasis, but they both arrive at the same place of the one true God. To find out more about the Eastern Lung of the Church, go to easternchristianmedia.com. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. The Tabor Life Institute, which is dedicated to the formation and education in the theology of the body. To find out more about the Tabor Life Institute, you can go to taborlife.org. That's taborlife.org. Especially if you're interested in conferences and retreats, in particular for youth, young adults, and also for those of you who speak Spanish. That's taborlife.org. Welcome back to Light of East. I'm Father Thomas Lowe, your host. And we are in the middle of a confluence, a meeting point of the incarnational season, the end of that season, ending with what was just yesterday. And we're still kind of in the, just barely in the post-festive part of it. And that is the encounter of our Lord in the temple with Simeon, sometimes called the presentation of our Lord in the temple. In the Western church, it's referred to as a Marian feast day of the purification of Mother God. And we're going to get to that in a moment. But first, we're going to finish up with the Meat Fair Sunday. That's the other thing. It's meeting the incarnational season here. So we have the meeting point of the ascetical and the incarnational season. I was reading from the liturgical text. I'd like to just read a couple more verses that gives us the sense of two themes during this Meat Fair Sunday. One of the ascetical discipline of giving up meat, you know, abstaining and trying to move beyond the tyranny of the passions, of anything that we obsess over or that possesses us. And secondly, the reminder of our last judgment, of our judgment day. Alas, my darkened soul, how long will you persist in sin? How long will you lie in laziness? Why do you not think of the dreadful hour of death? Do you not fear the awesome judgment seat of the Savior? How will you defend yourself? How will you be vindicated? Your works are there to convict you and your actions witness against you. Moreover, Time is growing short, O oh my soul. Hasten and cry out in faith. I have sinned, O oh Lord, I have sinned, but I know your love and your mercy, O oh good shepherd, and your goodness. Do not deprive me of a place at your right hand. You know, sometimes we are hesitant. It's, it's frightening to think about our judgment day, but you know, the great saints of the Eastern Church, the great ascetical saints, especially the monks, the spiritual masters, they would basically say this. If you want to grow in holiness, one of the best things you can do 
is think about your own death for just a few minutes each day. I know we don't like to do that, but if we do, think of the difference. I'm sure many of you have known people, probably even very close to you, who died tragically or suddenly. There was no preparation for them. There was no going back to tidy up, you know, make sure they paid their taxes, got their room in order before they went on to the next life. It's frightening, isn't it? But yet, those are reminders for us that the next moment is promised to no one. And the question is, hard question, but this Meat Fair Sunday in the time of Lent helps us to face it. Are we ready to go? Are we ready at any moment to stand judgment for our deeds or lack of good deeds before the Lord? It's frightening, I know, but we do have to look at it. And we get the help of the liturgical season here, especially today, the Meat Fair Sunday is also called Sunday of Last Judgment. Now, next Sunday, as we move right into Lent, Lent will begin on sunset on Sunday evening. We're going to call that Cheese Fair, but also Forgiveness Sunday. Lent begins with the dramatic Forgiveness Vespers. Well, as I mentioned, we also have the feast day, the end of the incarnational period, which began essentially with Christmas. We have the end of that with the celebration, the observance of Christ's entrance into the temple. This is a very, very ancient feast. Uh, Many scholars believe that this feast was introduced by the apostles very early on, and they didn't necessarily call it a specific feast. It was just all part of the nativity of the Lord, part of the, in his incarnation, his coming into the world. Because this feast observes something that happens only within 40 days of the birth of Christ. And it's a feast that is, along with the Theophany, the baptism of Christ, and the visit of the Magi, and Christ's birth itself, it's a feast that is one of manifestation, of a showing forth, of a presenting. In this case, it has a little nuance, a little other nuance of an encounter. It's a beautiful term to describe this event. Jesus comes into the temple, carried by Joseph and Mary, and he's presented in accordance with the law, which we read about in Leviticus 12. In Leviticus 12, when a woman gave birth, she was considered to be unclean for a while, and she couldn't approach, really, the temple until the 40th day. And she had to do it with a certain ritual and present either doves or pigeons as a kind of a sin offering. Now, this uncleanliness, uncleanness that the mother had, who just gave birth, has to be looked at in the right way. We sometimes cringe at that and think that it's very unfair. It's like I have a put-down on womanhood or, or childbirth. But actually, the reason for the uncleanness is because in childbirth, a woman loses blood. And a loss of blood in biblical thinking was a kind of a loss of life. It was almost like entering in a kind of a, a special, unusual kind of zone or existence. And so a person had to kind of re-enter that. And they would re-enter it through prayer and through ritual, because the loss of blood also meant, in a sense, like a loss of life, and that you were vulnerable then to, to evil. In other words, you lost something very, very essential, you know, the lifeblood. And so there was a vulnerability there, and you had, in a sense, touched a special place in reality. You know, a woman giving childbirth is a great mystery. And so there's this whole sense of re-entering this world, the restoration of life, and of re-entering the normal rhythm of life, kind of touching back down to earth after having experienced this incredible, mysterious experience of, of childbirth and of a loss of blood. There was sort of a re-entry into that, and it was a ritualistic re-entry. So it wasn't just a negative thing that women were so, ew, unclean, and, and it wasn't a put-down of women as sometimes is seen today. It actually had a much deeper meaning to it. But the interesting thing is, is that the mother of God 
because in childbirth, her childbirth, of course, with Christ was special, was miraculous. She did not lose blood. It was not the same pain loss of blood in the same way that we consider regular childbirth. So she, being a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ, it's a very, you know, it's a dogma of the church. She was a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. Because of that, she really didn't have to undergo this ritual. Christ himself didn't have to undergo this ritual. The laws, he was the lawgiver. He made the laws for his people. He didn't have to submit to them. Neither did the Virgin Mary. And yet they both did. What did this show? Why is this? What's the miracle of this? And the liturgical texts often refer to that. They talk about the lawgiver himself submitting himself to the law. And the Virgin Mary coming into the temple in this ritual purification, although she herself was pure, the pure virgin, it showed the great outpouring of love and of humility on the part of Jesus Christ and his most blessed mother. It showed how much God would be among us, would be one of us, that he would lower himself to undergo and submit to his own law, which he did not need. It was there for sinners, you know, for creatures, not the creator. And yet, the creator submits as a creature while remaining the creator. It's a marvelous miracle. Let's look at some of the liturgical texts for this feast day, which I mentioned, butts up against the oncoming of Lent with Meat Fair Sunday. Here's one of the liturgical texts from the Vesper service for the encounter of our Lord with Simon in the temple. Search the scriptures, as Christ our God said in the Gospels, for in them we find him who was born and wrapped in swaddling clothes, the one laid in a manger and fed upon milk, who received circumcision and was carried by Simeon, not in fancy nor in imagination, but in very truth he has appeared to the world. Let us cry out to him, glory to you, O pre-eternal God. Now that is a mouthful, isn't it? And we make it a mouthful by chanting this, these words. <laughs> I'm just reading them now, but we do chant them. You notice how this verse makes reference to the whole story of the Incarnation, as we've been talking about here, because this feast day is the sort of the ending of that whole incarnational period. It refers to the swaddling clothes, born in a manger, fed upon milk, the circumcision, and then it ends by saying, glory to O pre-eternal God. In other words, this is God who is infinite, who had no beginning and no end, who cannot be contained, not even by the universe, and yet he enters into finite reality. He becomes a baby, a human being. You know, we have, we have finiteness to us. We have boundaries, we have limits to us. You know, we're not infinite as our bodies aren't infinite. And yet God, who is infinite, enters into that. It's almost like he, he confines himself while still being pre-eternal and infinite. It's an incredible mystery. Now it says this in the Vesper service, Adorn your bridal chamber, O Zion, and welcome Christ the King. Welcome Mary, the gate of heaven, for she has appeared as a cherubic throne on which the King of glory is seated. Indeed, the virgin has become a cloud of light, bearing in her arms the eternal Son. Simeon received him in his arms and proclaimed to the people that he is the master, the master of life and death and the savior of the world. Now this verse brings in this very important element of light. Simeon says, now you may dismiss your servant, Lord, according to your word in peace. For my eyes have seen the revelation, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. A light. There's another element here. As God is being manifested, there is light that comes into the picture. 
light so that we see the reality of the incarnation. We see that this is God. It's amazing how when Simeon held Christ in his hands, this baby, he knew that it was God. It was who he was waiting for all his life as a devout Jewish man. And there he is, imagine if you were Simeon, holding God in your hands. And what did he say? So now you may dismiss your servant Lord because nothing else matters. What could possibly matter once you have beheld God in the flesh, God in your own hands? And Simeon's prayer, Simeon's sentiment is our sentiment. Now and always to behold God. After that, nothing else matters. Thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Would you like to hear this Light of the East program again? Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya. Or hear Father Loya's companion program, A Body of Truth. Just visit the radio page at byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. Or hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. For the first time. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To find out more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue this program with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount would be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East 14610. Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610, Will Cook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K, Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God bless you and grant you many happy years. <laughs>